<clears throat> well, um, in honor of Pentecost, you know, we're studying Joshua 22 um, because that's how we do this. It's actually pretty cool because you're going to find out it actually lines up. So, sorry. Um, God's, God's good. God is good about this. He, uh, he is better at coordinating uh, sermon series than I am by far because, yeah. Yeah, he's got this. Um, so, we're going to start, well, maybe... I can get. Oh, is that? A Carth phone is ringing. All right. Hopefully. Okay, there we go. Sweet. All right, I'm going to start out by reading uh, just a portion of this, and then we're going to jump off into um, a, a big section. So we're going over the whole of chapter 22, which is going to be a beast, but we can do this. We've done it many times. We know how to do this. Um, there's some really cool things I think we can draw out from this, and um, you know, set list really led up to, to all this as well, and I'm, I'm excited about uh, Ali was here last week. Hopefully you guys were blessed by his preaching, um, and you know, really sets us up for this as well, just talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And so I'm excited to jump into Joshua 22 and explore some of that from uh, the Eastern tribes perspective. So if you would join me in Joshua 22, 1 to 6, I'm going to read those verses and then uh, walk through the rest of the chapter as well. So Joshua 22, 1 to 6. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan." Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they, were, uh, and they went to their tents. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. We're uh, challenged by it, encouraged by it. And we pray that your spirit would um, guide and direct these words you've given me. And Lord, I pray you would just encourage our hearts this morning with your truth. Build us up and strengthen us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you heard it as you're kind of listening to the end of that uh, section of scripture, but uh, chapter, or verses 5 sounds probably familiar to you. Love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. If you think about the commandments, we went through the commandments, spent a good amount of time on the commandments, and what were they about? They were about loving your neighbor. So when you think about Jesus, when, when people come to Jesus and say, what's the greatest commandment, right? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. It's here. It's right here, and it's all through the Old Testament. Um, We're seeing Joshua admonish the three tribes, two and a half, sorry, 
two and a half tribes, they're going to take land on the eastern side of the Jordan to listen to the law of the Lord, to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, cling to him, serve him. He's saying, as you go back across the Jordan, do not forget the God who brought you here. Remember him and serve him. We see through, the, through that opening passage that uh, Joshua also commends them. He says, hey, you guys have done everything you promised to do. Okay, these three tribes, when they got to the eastern side of the Jordan, said, hey, we've got really big tribes and lots of cattle and livestock. And so we need all this land that we've just taken over from the King Og and King Sihon. Okay, so, so why don't we take this possession, Moses? They went to Moses and asked him for that. He granted it to them. He was kind of mad at first, but then he said, okay, that's cool. But his one condition was that once you set up protection for your wives and your children, and once you set up uh, places for your livestock to live, you are to come over with us into the land and conquest it until it is complete. Okay? So all of your men of war are to come across the Jordan with us and fight with your brothers until we have taken our land as well. So... Joshua here is commending them and saying, hey, you have done everything that you promised to do and that was asked of you in following the Lord and giving rest to your brothers in the land that he promised them. So we see this at the outset of, uh, of the chapter here. Um, it's a little confusing because here in verses 7 and 8, Joshua gives a blessing to the western half of the tribe of Manasseh. It's kind of like inserted in here in a weird spot. Uh, but mainly the chapter is talking about the eastern half of the tribe of Manasseh. So if you saw that in verses 7 and 8, that's kind of the distinction there. Um, so Joshua blesses the people and says, Go to your land in the eastern side of the Jordan. And they depart. In verse 9, uh, following down to verse, uh, verse 34, this is the main section of, uh, of the text, um, we're going to see the departing of the eastern tribe and what they do, okay? So they leave from Shiloh, where they were given a blessing from Joshua, and head toward uh, the eastern uh, side of the Jordan. But before they get there, they come to the place of Gilgal, which is right where, you know, they came across the Jordan uh, to Gilgal and set up camp there before they took over Jericho, Okay? So they're, again, right where they started in the land. They go right to that spot. And there what we see them do is they build an altar of witness. Uh, Verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of the Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben, of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. So as they go, they stop right at the western side of the Jordan. Okay, so not their land, but in the land of the people, right? Inside the promised land proper, okay? And right there, they build an altar of imposing size. And so what we are to take from this is that they wanted this altar to be seen from the eastern side. So they built it on the western side, but they wanted it to be seen from the eastern side. This is part of what they're trying to tell themselves as well as the people of Israel that they are not divided by the Jordan River as a people. They are one people. They just happen to be going across into 
uh, the eastern side of the Jordan. So picking up in uh, verse 12. When the people heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh. Oh, sorry. Did I read verse 11? Uh, yeah, I did. Okay, cool. Uh, verse 12. And, and when the people of Israel heard it, so that's the western tribes, the tribes that are staying in the land proper, they gathered at Shiloh to make war against the eastern tribes. Okay, so there's been some sort of confusion here, so much so that the western tribes are now ready to go to civil war against their people that have gone to the eastern side. We've got a conflict, right? Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben, Gad, and and the half-tribe of Manasseh in Gilead, uh, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them ahead of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh in the land of Gilead and said to them, verse 16, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and from, for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord? that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Okay, so you can see a beef here uh, from the western tribes with the eastern tribes. They say, you've set up this altar, this huge altar that can be seen across the Jordan. Why are you going to do this? There's only one altar where the Lord's presence is. Why would you set up another You're committing sin. You're breaking faith with God by creating another altar. And they bring up a number of things, right? They bring up a couple of things that we've studied. They bring up the sin at Beth Peor. That's before they came into the land at Shittim. They were, you know, worshiping the God of the Moabites, right? And a plague came upon the people because of that sin. And it says here they're still dealing with the effects of that sin to this day. So throughout the time in Jordan conquest, or the conquest of Israel, and unto this day when they have conquested, they're still seeing the effect of the moral failure at Baal Peor. And again, they bring up Achan and say, this breach of faith is akin to Achan. Remember Achan, right? When Achan uh, took um, devoted things from Jericho, it resulted in the failure of uh, the war against Ai and the condemnation of him and his family. And so they're saying, hey, guys, we're ready to go to war against you because you are committing a breach of faith against the Lord God by building this altar here. So that's the, uh, the alleged offense, right? They're saying, what are you doing? Why would you do this? So a couple things I want to see here. First is that they see this as a breach of faith, which I think I've you know, made clear. But second, 
The Western tribes very clearly in this moment see the Eastern tribes as one with them, right? Can you see that? Like throughout this passage, they are concerned about the heart of the Eastern tribes because they're saying if you break faith, then sin and condemnation will come on all of us. So they're seeing them as one. So you can see some, you know, good understanding of the, of the situation here from the Western tribe that we are one people. If you break faith, we all break faith. And so what are you doing? And they challenge them and say, what is going on with this? I have to understand because we ready, we're ready to take you out. If you're not going to be a part of us, we're ready to take you out. And if, if the Eastern side isn't good enough for you, then come to this side. We'll make room. We'll make it work, right? Let's say if, if that's too much, it's, it's too defiled, then come into the Lord's land. We'll make it work. They see themselves as one with the Eastern tribes. This is a good thing. So in response to this, we have uh, the Eastern tribes responding in verses 21 through 29, defending their actions, okay? They say, no, 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 no. Listen. Listen to what we believe and why we've done this. Um, This is pretty cool. I, I know. I know you've heard this a million times. But literally, I, I, I got to tell you, I found someone that likes chiasms more than me, okay? My brother-in-law is studying chiasms in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament. He loves chiasms more than me. So if you can imagine that, someone that likes chiastic structure more than I do, there is somebody. And, and I, think, I think Isaiah likes chiastic structure too, maybe, yeah? Chiastic structure, okay, so A, B, C, B, A, okay? So it's like a poem, right? If you're going to write a poem, A relates to A prime, B relates to B prime, and C is in the center, okay? And usually, C, the center point, is the most important thing that wants to be emphasized. But A and B and all these things can also be interesting, right? So right at the center of this chiastic structure is the response from the people of, uh, of the eastern tribes. And I've got a little chart. You could see how this is put together, whatever, how it relates and all this. Um, but throughout this chapter, it's like, there's like seven layers of chiasm. I didn't want to go too crazy with you, but right at the center of it, I just want to emphasize, right at the center of this is the response from the eastern tribes saying this. Then the people of Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe Manasseh, the eastern tribes, answer to the heads of the families of Israel. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. That's El Elohim Yahweh. El Elohim Yahweh. He knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from the following, from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. So what they're saying is, we did not build this altar to be an altar of sacrifice. We did not make this altar to bring new burnt offerings to, or to bring worship to, or to host the presence of God. They're saying it's not for that reason that we built this structure. No, but we did it from fear that in the time to come, your children might say to our children, what have we to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The concern is there's a huge river between us, okay? You want, call, you want to call it tracks, you want to call it river, whatever it is, there's a separation between us. And in the future to come, we're afraid that your kids are going to tell our kids that we're not part of you. And so we built this altar. 
For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you, uh, you people of Reuben and, you, and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. They're afraid they're going to say of this. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and between you, between our generation after us, that we do uh, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us, that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So they're saying emphatically, I know what it looks like because it is a copy. It's meant to be a copy. A copy so big on this side of the land, which we so value, that we can see it on the eastern side as a witness to your people and our people, that we are one. The eastern tribes defend their actions, praising the God of gods, the Lord. This altar was a replica large enough to say, we are one with Israel, and his presence extends beyond the Jordan. I love when I find in Scripture a place, a little nugget like this, okay? Because so often we think of the Old Testament, right? And we think of the land, and here's the land, and this is the promised land, and this land is the land of promise. This is the only place where the presence of the Lord goes and where you can serve the Lord. That was never the point of the land. That wasn't the point of the land, right? The people of Israel extend beyond the Jordan, beyond the promised land. His glory goes beyond just some land. The land is important because it's a, it's a symbol, a representation, a place where the, the, the hosting of God's presence is held for this people, but is never meant to be an end in itself. God wants glory in the entire world. It is the center point, yes, but is not the ending point. And so how cool that even in the giving of the land, these two and a half tribes said, we are part of you. We may not be on that side of the Jordan, but we are one with you. And the cool thing is that they actually agree, right? Uh, the, the Western tribes are so committed to the unity of the tribes that they go and they're ready to go to war, right? They're like, hey guys, no, 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 no replicas. We serve the Lord God Almighty in one place. He is one God. That's why we serve him in one place. And so why are you building this altar? Because this is not good. This is like Achan. This is like Baal Peor. This is a bad thing. They're ready to go to war. So after this, uh, Phineas the priest, verse 30 to 34, returns to the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him. And they heard these words of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, and they saw that it was good in their eyes. And when Phineas, uh, the son of Eleazar, this is verse 31, the priest said to the people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, the chiefs, 
returned from the people of Reuben, of Gad, and land, uh, in the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and people of Gad were settled. And finally, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So the story starts with them building the altar and it ends with them naming the altar, right? That's the beginning of the chiasm. Um, they call this altar witness. It is a witness between us that we are one with the people of the Lord in Israel. They reconcile and name this altar. Okay, so, so that's Joshua, chapter 22, uh, in, in sort of the, uh, the, the rundown of what is said there. So what do we do with this? How does this chapter in, in Joshua make any sense to us today? And I'd say it makes a lot of sense to us today. There's a few things that I want to uh, have us go with from this passage. And the first is this. The effect of sin is long-lasting. The effect of sin is long-lasting. There is a generational, long effect to moral failure. It's just the, just the truth of the matter. Um, Baal Peor and the sin of Achan were major moral failures. They were not accidents, but rather headlong pursuits of fleshly desire. Okay? It didn't like overnight turn and uh, they just got caught. Like, oh, all of a sudden we're deciding to worship Baal Peor, right? It started somewhere and became a moral failure. It started with desire. We've read uh, James 1, 13 to 15, and it says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a progression to sin. It starts in a place where our desires are not right. And those desires conceive into sin, and that sin births death. That's what we're seeing in this passage. When, when the people of Israel come to the eastern tribes and say, do you not know that still we're dealing with the effect of the sin of Baal Peor, like 40 years ago or whatever that was, right? Do you not know that we're still dealing with the effects of the breaking of faith of Achan? We're still dealing with this. Do not commit this moral failure because moral failures have deep and long consequences. Unfortunately, this is something that applies directly to our time in Christian evangelical faith. We unfortunately have seen this a lot. The effect of moral failure is devastating. I mean, you know, you all know the names, right? SBC Abuse Report, Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, and the list goes on. People we thought that were trustworthy let fleshly desire take over and give birth to moral failure, which brought forth death. In themselves alone, right, it is a personal sin that affected another. 
and there's tremendous damage just in the, in the action, the actions that occurred. But the repercussions of those actions throughout evangelical faith, throughout our culture, to look onto the name of Christ and say, they're just like everyone else. What a stain on the name of Jesus that these things occur. The effect of sin is long-lasting. Not only to the people that it was committed to, you know, obviously most traumatically, but to anyone who looks now on the name of Christian and says, yeah, you know, I followed that guy. He was really smart, you know, and he had a lot of good things to say, but turns out he's uh, fake. Right? The effect of moral failure is long and deep. It brings forth death. James doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, do not say I'm being tempted by God. No, you are lured and enticed by your own desire. And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is the fear that the Western tribes had when they're looking at the Eastern tribes. They're going, if you do this, we're going to suffer for years to come. It's going to have effect, not just on you, but on us as a people, because we are one. One of the deceitful things of sin is that we think it's only personal. We think that our sin is just something we hide, and as long as we keep it hidden, it doesn't hurt anybody. But unfortunately, with sin, it has a way of getting out. Because once you start lying to cover up your sin, you start losing track of your lies, and your lies become known. This is the, this is the pattern over and over again. Adam, where are you? Right? God knows where you are. And so it's a lie from the enemy to say, well, this is just a person that won't affect anybody else. It's just me. I'm just going to keep this hidden. Nope. As soon as that hits, the person you've offended and the people that they love and the people that they love and the people that they love, look at that and say, I don't want anything to do with that or anything associated with it. The name of Christ is stained. The effect of sin is long-lasting. So, the effect of sin is long-lasting. What do we do? We all know we're sinners. We, all of us would stand up and confess, I'm a sinner and I'm struggling today. I, I would hope you'd be honest enough to say that. I, I am. I'm a, I'm a sinner and I'm struggling with sin today. Okay? I have to fight sin. We need accountability. We need it. We desperately need to be in community with each other, caring for each other, not, not sin-sniffing, not trying to like, put each other down, but lovingly confronting. Like, listen to the heart of the Western tribes. We are one with you. Do not sin in this way. It will break us. Their heart is not to do damage to the eastern tribes, but to rather lovingly restore them. They'll say, we'll give you some of our land. Come over here. Don't worry about this altar. If it's too far from you to go to Jerusalem, then come here. Come with us. We'll make room. They're doing anything they can. They are moving mountains to be sure that a breach of faith is not occurring. That's accountability. First John 1, 8 to 10 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. A friend of mine uh, shared a podcast with me and I shared it with some of the men. Um, It was a really helpful podcast on the concept of accountability. Because there's kind of a perspective of having an accountability partner. Anybody ever have have an accountability partner in their Christian walk? Okay, right? And that person is like, uh, you know, you, you might do a number of things. You might meet up and, uh, and say, how'd you do? It didn't do well. Okay, I'm going to pray for you and move on, this kind of thing. Hope you do better, this kind of deal. Um, and there's almost like a reliance on our accountability structure we have made to deal with our sin rather than a, a taking of responsibility of the sin itself in us. And so we have to be careful when we think about how am I going to set up some accountability, to make sure that I'm the one taking responsibility for what I'm doing. To be accountable is to take account of what has happened. A person who's accountable is able to give an account, is able to describe and take responsibility for the state of things. When you set up you know, some sort of relationship like that, you're not getting that person to be your helper. You're finding a trustworthy person that you can tell the state of things. Not so they can check up on you and get filters and get reports about what you've been looking at and all this kind of thing. It's not about that. If you start going down that road, you've missed the point. Okay, We, as believers, need to take responsibility for following Jesus and find someone we can trust with whatever sin we're going through. Listen to, again, 1 John verse 9. If we confess our sins, not if someone calls me out on my sin, But if we confess our sins, the responsibility is on me as a follower of Jesus to make sure I can find someone I can trust to be open about whatever sin I'm struggling with. Too much news, too much social media, too much work, too many games, not enough time in the Word. I have to confess. No one can confess for me. Right? We have to be ready to fight this battle the same way the Western tribes were, the same way the Eastern tribes were. They were ready to stand up and say, no, this is what it is. This is the state of things. We're just afraid that when we go over there, you're going to forget about us. And instead of this confrontation, they were to say, no. El Elohim Yahweh. El Elohim Yahweh. The Lord is God of gods. We worship the same God. There is one God, and he is in Israel. We just want you to know that we're one with you, and they were. Do you have someone in your life that you can be that real with, that you can go to and say, something's not right, and we got to get it right? The effect of sin is long-lasting, and in combat to it, we need accountability. We need to find ways in which we can encourage each other, strengthen each other, all the more as the day is approaching. And finally, we have God's presence. We have the very presence of God. I mean, what, what better you know, thing to end on here, on, on Pentecost, than God's presence is with us. The land was never meant to be an end in itself. It is a representation of God's presence. 
the fear of the eastern tribes, you know, is based on the fact that, oh, the land is more superior than the land outside of it. It's not really the point. It is to say God is separate and holy and above all things, and there is one of him, but it is not to say that he controls all the world and can be displayed in all his glory everywhere. The land has never been an end in itself. The Jordan River is not the dividing line of God's presence, okay? He extends to the ends of the earth. He is the very creator of it. The Jordan River was never meant to be a limit for God's people. And we know now that that limit extends. There is no limit, right? He wants to take up residence inside of our hearts, wherever we are on this ball of dust, you know, floating through the space, right? Wherever we are, he wants to take up residence in us. That's where he wants his presence to lie. That's where he wants his presence to be. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In 1 Corinthians, Paul was admonishing the Corinthians to take seriously the sin that was present among them. And his case is built on this truth about our identity as believers. We host the presence of the Holy Spirit within ourselves. His presence is with us by the grace and blood of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, again, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The key to fighting sin is to knowing who we are and how we got there, right? The altar of witness was not made to be a place to make more offerings. The Eastern tribe did not see it that way. I believe later on we'll find out that they screwed that up, but in the outset, okay, truthfully, um, in the outset, its purpose is not to be a worship site, but rather to be a reminder of a truth, and that truth is that God is Savior. I mean, you saw it throughout Joshua. There's nothing that the people of Israel did to take the land. God tore down the walls. God drew out the people. God helped them hamstring the horses of the land that were so mighty and powerful. God is the one that parted the Jordan River during its flood stage. This is God's work that has been done, not based on their righteousness, right? They were sinners coming up to the Jordan. They were broken. They're still dealing with their sin from before the Jordan. And God says, in spite of that, ah, my glory is going to go forward. And yeah, I'm going to use your ragtag group. The same is true for us. We all come to Jesus as sinners, broken And there's nothing, no stack of deeds we can build up, no courses that we can take to perfect ourselves in righteousness. Nothing we can do to stack up ourselves will make us righteous enough. Only this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ultimately, our fight against sin and our ability to keep one another accountable is rooted in our identity in Jesus. 
not in a stacking up of works of good and bad and trying to make sure we outweigh the bad with the good and all this kind of thing. What a mess to try and keep track of that all my life. I don't have to. Praise God. Jesus has finished the work, and by his blood I am reconciled and made righteous, not by anything I do. And as soon as you get that and understand that, sin is a much easier problem to solve because you are grateful. You understand, I was a wretched sinner, and God still loved me. God sent his son to die for me while I was his enemy. That's insane. Nobody does that. It's stupid, okay? It is just not logical in our human brains for someone who had no sin to become our sin. It doesn't make sense to us. And that is the grace and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what has happened in your past. Today, he's calling you to follow him and to trust in his grace and his mercy, not in your efforts. Your efforts will always fail. They'll fail yourself. They'll fail those around you. They'll fail God. But he says, when I look at you, brother, I look at my son, Jesus Christ, who poured out his blood on your behalf. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. His presence is in you. Reject that which is not true and stand in that which is true. We have the very presence of God. There's no boundary line of religious purity anymore. The veil is torn. He has made way for his spirit to live inside of you and me. Praise God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're so thankful for uh, the good news of Christ, that the one who had no sin took on my sin. I have no way to fight. I have no way toward success in this battle without that truth of my identity in Jesus. Lord, I pray that, um, that we would take our sin seriously, that we would know it's not just personal. Um, what we do affects the body directly, uh, now and forever. And the further we go down that road from desire to sin to moral failure, the harder and the worse it becomes. Death is conceived out of sin, and it starts with just fleshly desire. So God, help us be ones that fight, that lovingly, graciously, but truthfully fight for the identity of Christ inside of us. Help us stand in the truth that Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside of us and help us hold each other accountable in a way that is loving and helpful, not as a crutch, but as an empowerment. God, fill us with your spirit that we might uh, encourage and, and strengthen one another in the faith. We're so grateful for your gospel, and we pray that you'd help us apply it to our lives every single day. Help us not graduate beyond the good news that Jesus has died for my sin. There is no more new knowledge. It is just that. It is finished. Christ has done the work, and he's given me his presence. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.